So again, welcome. It's good to see you guys here. Hey, let me share with you uh, where we're headed today, and hopefully this is going to be a challenging message. I know as I studied this week and I was looking at this subject, it's the one of the fruit of the Spirit that probably, if I had to test myself, would say is a real growth edge. It's this word. It's an ugly word, patience. To be patient towards others, it's not something that I really want to welcome God into my life to do, to cause me to become more patient. I think sometimes I'm pretty content in my impatience at times and the way I respond, but this is a challenging subject. But what we're talking about as we're going through this series is not just simply cultivating patience, we're cultivating a heart that loves God. So as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we're not simply saying, hey, how can we be better people? But really, how can the fruit of the Spirit flow from a heart that is captivated by the grace of God? Because, see, the fruit of the Spirit is not something you put on. It's fruit. Fruit is not something you grow out of yourself. It's something that grows from the fruit of the Spirit. So as the Spirit is captivated by God, as we are worshiping Jesus Christ and engaged with Him, as the grace of God has already changed us and is now continuing to change us, the evidence of that is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those things begin to grow in our life, not simply as individual fruit, but in symmetry with one another. That the degree to which I am impatient, to that degree I do not love. The degree to which I do not have joy, to that degree I am not faithful. So just because in one area I may be strong, as the Spirit of God is working in my life, He wants those elements of the fruit of the Spirit, the signs of a transformed heart, to grow in relationship with itself. So today we're talking about this idea of a spiritually transformed heart. Because see, in the Christian life, in the Christian life, it's possible to generate morality on your own strength. It's possible to be stoic or to be morally restrained, to learn techniques, you know, to go to church and say, okay, I'm now in church, so I got to be a better person. I know I need to be more loving, and so I'm just going to put me on some love with some techniques, new strategies on how to do that. And often churches will teach you that stuff. Many sermons are actually how-to sermons on how to become a better person, not simply how to worship God more. And what we're talking about is how can we worship God in a way that causes this fruit to be produced in our life, not to have just a morally restrained heart, and that's a good thing. I mean, we want a culture that's morally, a culture that's morally restrained. That's good. But God wants to produce that life change through us as we're captivated by him. And what does that look like? Well, today we're going to pick up this ugly word. It's an ugly word even in the Greek. It's a word makrothumia. That's the word for patience. When we come across that in the Greek, it's this word macro. When we probably heard that word before, compound word. It means long or large. Thumia, thumio, which means thermal. Now, often it's translated in the Bible, this old English word, as long-suffering. Macro, long, thumia, thermal, boiling, long-suffering. So to be patient is to put up with heat without breaking down. To put up with the heat of life, the suffering of life, the hardships of life without melting, without falling apart. Someone that is patient has a high tolerance for heat in life, suffering, difficulty, and they don't break down easily. Now let me show you a picture of the opposite of that. The opposite on your elemental charts is uh, mercury. Mercury breaks down at room temperature. Now, if you don't know anything about mercury, it's often used in barometers, thermostats, because at room temperature, it falls apart. Mercury cannot withstand much heat. Now, nickel, iron, to cause nickel and iron to fall apart, it requires a tremendous amount of pressure 
and heat before it breaks down. So nickel is patient. Iron is patient. Mercury, impatient. As soon as the heat comes on, it falls apart. So as we jump into this subject, what we're looking at is this idea that when difficulty comes into my life, how can I endure? Now, last week we looked at the first half of this, and you may not have realized this, but there are two types of patience. There are patience towards circumstances, and that's actually called peace. Peace is patience in terms of the circumstances of life. The second aspect of patience is not patience towards circumstances, but rather patience towards people. How do I respond when people hurt me? How do I respond when I disagree with somebody? When somebody is not just simply disagreeable, uh, but they're mean to me, they reject me, or maybe their values, their way of life, how they approach things is completely different from my own. How do I respond to someone who have a different set of morality, a different set of morals, a different, set, different way of living? How do I engage in a relationship with that person without melting down? Now, some of you, some of you are really good at that in different areas. Now, I tend to be good at that inside the church. I've learned that, that aspect with Christians. I tend to be okay with Christians who struggle with sin. I tend to be okay with Christians who are going through difficulties as long as they're honest about it. I really don't have a big issue with that. I know some people in churches, when they find out that somebody's struggling with sin, they're an addiction, they have a hard time with that. They, they break down. They fall apart. Now, I'll tell you, our brother Steve, at places like the Little Bear, he has patience with people outside the church. He has patience with people that when he engages with them, they don't have to agree with him. They can live a different lifestyle, and he can engage with them, enter into relationship with them without changing, without breaking himself down. Does that make sense? And so some of you, you fall apart in different circumstances with certain types of people in certain areas in certain relationships. And so what does it look like to have a heart that is really captivated by God in such a way that when we engage those circumstances, we're not melting? We're not mercury. We're not running all over the place, but our joy is intact, our peace is intact, and our love is intact. Do you see that? Hey, this is incredibly essential today. You know, we live in, and we're going to talk about this in a world that instead of talking about patience from a spiritual perspective, we'll talk about sec secular, is the word, secular tolerance. That's what I was trying to say before Freud stepped in and tried to change it. Secular tolerance, there's a big difference, and we'll talk about this, the difference between secular tolerance and spiritual patience. So let's jump into it. We're going to look at two passages. It's a pretty uh, amazing subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to pick it up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 11, and then we're going to look at Romans 15, verses 1 to 7. So the first place is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some in front of you. Please grab one or you can turn on your phone, and we'd love, to, uh, love it if you join us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things, and from whom, from whom are all things, and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols eat food 
as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And if you want to, jump over to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to start off in verse 1. Romans 15, verse 1. And so we who are strong, we have an obligation. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, and let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of the, those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance, uh, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father, as we... um, as we open your word and look at this passage, these two passages, the context of which talking about idols and food sacrificed to idols, that's distant and removed. And yet the principle of it remains, the truth of it remains. So Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts? Would you take the word that is living and active and not simply add knowledge upon knowledge, but would knowledge through grace begin to transform the heart, to give us a picture of who you are, how you have loved us. And because of that, Father, engage us in a way that causes us to love others that, that truly reveals the gospel. So, Father, teach us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a word I want to introduce you to. It's a word that Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, introduced me to. And it's a word called receptive grace. That patience really is receptive grace. Now, we're going to describe what that looks like, but before we do, I think we need to explain what's going on in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 15. Because in both of these passages, the context is strange. Food sacrificed to idols, weak, strong. What's he talking about? Well, see, in both Romans and in Corinthians, there's a problem that's taking place between two types of people. There are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. So Gentile Christians just simply means those who are not of Jewish origin. And they're having conflicts around racial issues and cultural issues. Now, in the book of Romans, the context of what's happening is the Jewish Christians lived according to these dietary laws. They grew up with them. And they had certain beliefs based on what they ate, that God had forbidden certain foods, and he had said other foods are okay. But when they came to faith in Christ, Jesus declared all things clean, that what you eat doesn't make you unclean, Instead, Jesus cleanses us, and so the purpose of those laws was to show us we need God. We need God to cleanse us. Well, these Jewish Christians had a struggle with that. 
They grew up with this idea. They, they were bathed in this idea. Their culture was alive with this idea. And then these Gentile Christians showed up, and they were eating bacon. They were eating shellfish. And the Jewish Christians said to the Gentile Christians, that's wrong. See, to really follow Jesus, it's not enough just to believe him. You also have to put away your bacon. You've got, and that'd be tough, you've got to put away your shellfish. That actually defiles you. And so these Jewish Christians were taking these cultural laws, they were placing them on Gentile Christians, and they were excluding them oftentimes from the church because they were saying, you're not good enough, your values are not good enough, the way you are living is not good enough to be included in the body of Christ. And so this division was created in the church around racial and cultural lines. Doesn't sound anything like today. Now, in the book of uh, Corinthians, it's a different issue. It's not just simply uh, dietary laws, but rather what he's describing at that time is food that was sacrificed or dedicated to an idol. Because Corinth was a Greek culture. And the Greeks and the Gentiles, they had different gods in their communities. And based on your profession, you had a god. And based on your family, you had a god. And when you went to the marketplace to buy milk or food, everything in the marketplace was dedicated to a god. Some food, meat, was sacrificed to gods. Now, when the Gentiles came to faith, they were superstitious. They believed these gods still existed. They still had power in your life. So when the Jewish Christians went to the Gentile churches, they would eat food sacrificed to idols because the Jewish Christians knew there was only one God and one God alone, and eating food sacrificed to idols did not spiritually damage you in any way because God is powerful. He has authority over my life, and so food sacrificed to idols wasn't an issue. But for the Gentiles, it was. And they would say to the Jewish Christians, just like the Jewish Christians said to the Gentiles, you can't be a part of our fellowship. Your values aren't right. The way you're living doesn't honor Christ. It's good that you're following him, but you also have to avoid food sacrificed to idols. And so each one of them had these separate laws. And they were holding up these laws as a test of your love for God. They were saying, if you do this, you're good, but if you don't, then you don't love God well enough, and that law was creating divisions in the church. And the question is, how should those two groups relate? How should those two groups relate, and how do we relate to people that sometimes hold laws or values or even behave in ways that are completely different from our own? And maybe it's not just simply in the church. It could be political. It could be outside the church. It could be sexual ethics. Actually, I did say at that time. It could be a whole host of things. How do we respond to people? Well, there are two words that Paul uses. In the passage, he uses the word weak, and he uses the word strong. And so we need to get some definitions in place before we jump back into it. Now, the word weak, when he says a brother is weak, it, and he says has a weak conscience, it doesn't mean that he has no conscience. We think of someone with a weak conscience as someone that does whatever they like. They're not convicted by anything. Instead, somebody with a weak conscience in the Scripture is somebody who's constantly feeling convicted. They're constantly judging things. Everything is black. Everything is white. They don't like gray areas. And when gray areas show up, they get very uncomfortable because they don't understand how to apply the grace of God to their life. They need rules and lines. And if the rules and lines aren't clear and they aren't drawn out, it causes them to fall into places that are uncomfortable, whether it's judging others or overly judging themselves. Meaning a weak person is someone who hasn't applied the truth of the gospel to some area of their life. They haven't applied the truth of what Christ has done to some aspect or area of their life. And see, that's true for all of us. 
All of us have areas of our life where the implication of what we believe isn't changing us. Maybe it's our family of origin that has a greater weight on our life. Maybe it's our cultural context. Maybe it's a political idea. There are aspects of our life where there are laws that have a greater influence on us than our love for God. And see, that's someone with a weak conscience. It's not simply they're doing whatever they want. Rather, they're overjudging things. They're judging themselves and they're judging others. Now, someone with a strong conscience is simply someone who has applied the truth of the gospel to their life. Someone who's looked at these clean laws and said, you know, Jesus makes us clean. These laws no longer have a role in my life. Now, I may obey them as a, a mark of respect to my family, but I know that whether I eat this or I eat that doesn't affect my relationship with God. See, someone who is strong in conscience is simply someone who understands and has applied the truth of what God has done to every area of life. And so these are the two challenges. These are the two groups that, that Paul is speaking to. And so if you want to jump back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, Paul, first of all, addresses the weak, and here's how he describes them. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through a former association to idols, meaning your upbringing, some through their experiences, eat food really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So there's something, there's some value in their life, and when they do this practice, it causes them to feel guilty. Even though they're not guilty, even though they haven't done anything wrong, there's this false guilt in their life. And they take that false guilt and they apply it to themselves. And they say, I must not be right with God. Or they apply it to others and say, because you're living in this way, you must not be right with God. Now, let me share an experience that may hopefully give some context. When I went to my first church, not my first, it was my second church in Texas, it's about 12, 13 years ago. There was this couple there, and they loved the Lord. Fantastic couple. But they had heard that I, in a sermon, mentioned alcohol one time. And I actually mentioned drinking alcohol one time. And that caused them great concern. See, they grew up in a house that they believed that Christians never drank alcohol, and certainly not pastors. And pastors would never, and maybe you've experienced this, never admit to drinking alcohol, certainly not in a public setting. And so when they sat me down, they were serious. And I was thinking to myself, what are we going to talk about? You know, they had that sense of moral just kind of concern. And, and I was worried. I thought, wow, I must have offended them. I must have done something. They said, you know, pastor, no Christian should drink alcohol. I said, okay. And in a sermon, you talked about alcohol. Well, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol. And that entered into a conversation. And thankfully, that conversation in that moment, I'm going to tell you another one that didn't go well. That one actually went very, very well. And we had a conversation about that. But here was something that through cultural experience, they had a law, they had a value. And because of that, they were concerned for me because I wasn't following that, that cultural value. Now, that's somebody that Paul would describe as someone who is weak. It doesn't mean that that value isn't a good value. It just means it's not something that should impact the way they view their relationship with God. And so in verse, um, in verse 4, Paul describes the weak. In verse 4, he describes, the, or actually, he describes the strong. And in verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we, which means Paul's identifying himself with this group, we know an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Meaning, food sacrificed to idols, Paul's saying, I realize it has no power in my life. Because those gods don't exist. 
See, the Gentiles believed those gods existed, and so when you ate that food, you allowed that influence to come into your life. Paul's saying, those gods don't exist. They have no power or authority in my life. And therefore, Paul's saying, this, it, it's not an issue for me. It's not a struggle. See, what we're describing are these gray areas that come up because of culture and because of our different experiences. You know, someone, I had another conversation with someone. This was actually my first church, just starting out in ministry, and he was angry, incredibly angry with me. And he sat me down, and I was waiting, okay, what's he going to tell me? And I thought it must be something he saw me say or something he saw me do, or I must have some blind spot in my life. And he sat me down, and he said, you know what? It is your job to visit everyone in the hospital. And I know two people who have been in the hospital, and you didn't visit them. And he was morally outraged. Because, see, in that community, it was incredibly valuable. It didn't matter what kind of procedure we were having. And these were procedures that were not life-threatening. They were not major concerns to these people. But it was his firm belief that as a pastor, my job is to show up every single time someone shows up in the hospital. And there was only one hospital in town, so you could easily find out who was there. And he was morally outraged. Now, I have to admit, in that moment, I responded in weakness. Weakness means I allowed his condemnation to fall into my heart, and I responded towards him with judgment. See, what does it mean to be weak? Well, he was applying weakness to me, but you can also respond to people when they judge you to respond out of weakness, which means to push back. It means to justify yourself, to argue in such a way that you're trying to prove that they are wrong and you are right, instead of responding with receptive grace. Now, we're going to talk about what that means. Receptive grace means instead of responding with graciousness, with patience, with love, getting to know the individual, getting to know why that's valuable to them before you speak into their life. And this was someone that was incredibly angry, but I didn't respond to that in that moment in a way that helped him, but instead a way that made it much more difficult. And so turn with me to Romans chapter 15, and I want to show you something. In Romans 15, we read this. How do we respond in those moments? And Paul describes where the responsibility lies within the church or outside the church. In Romans chapter 15, verse 1, he described it this way. He says, we who are strong, and notice the language, we have an, a moral obligation. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and see not to please ourselves. So we have an obligation, and our obligation is to bear with one another. And this is true inside the church. It's also true outside. And in, at the end of it, in verse 7, he said it this way. Here's what it looks like to bear with one another. Therefore, welcome one another... As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's what he's saying. On the one hand, he's saying the people who are causing divisions, they're called weak. Weak in conscience because they're holding up values and laws that shouldn't be held up as dividing lines. They're raising them up and they're causing divisions. He recognizes they're the ones creating the problems. But guess who's responsible? It's not the weak. It's those who claim to know the grace of God. He's saying in verse 1, it's our obligation to do what? To tell them they're wrong? To confront them? To cast them out? He says to bear with the failings of the weak. One thing you'll find in Scripture is God always puts the responsibility on those who claim to love him and know him. He does not put the responsibility on those who do not know him and do not love him. Now, God, that's God's responsibility, right? It's God who judges. 
We are not in that place of judgment for those who are apart from him. But he says the responsibility to respond to that individual always rests with us. Now, let me show you what that looks like. Because in many places, Scripture says, do not respond to evil with evil. Rather, respond to evil with good. And so there's one place in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23 where Jesus describes it this way. Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 23. And he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Meaning, if you've sinned against somebody, and you know they have an issue with you, address it. When you've sinned against someone, and we kind of understand that, when you're the one that's caused the rift, caused the disagreement, go and approach them and make it right. So it's our responsibility. But second, in Matthew 18... Verse 15, listen to how he describes it at this case. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother back. So on the one hand, if you sin against someone, it's your responsibility. But if someone against you sins against you, it's also your responsibility, meaning it's always your responsibility. You're always responsible, regardless if they have sinned against you or you have sinned against them, to respond to them with receptive grace. Now, how did Jesus say we should do that? Well, here's how we should do it. Before we address their issue, we've got to address our issue. He said in Matthew chapter 7, before you address the speck in your brother's eye, ensure you're approaching them with humility by addressing the plank, meaning, I would say, as Paul says, the weakness in your own eye. See, I think the two come together. When Jesus is describing going to your brother, and when we address the plank that's in our eye, that's the weakness. It's the brokenness in us, the need to be accepted. Maybe for some of us, it's the need to be right. It's the need to prove someone wrong. Because, see, I feel okay with God when I'm standing on the right and when I prove to someone else that they're wrong. And Jesus says, before you approach your brother, you need to get your heart right with God. To recognize God doesn't love me because I'm right. He doesn't love me because I do it right. He loves me because I am covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for my sins. He rose again. He's co I'm covered in Christ's righteousness. This is my reason for acceptance. And when I approach that brother, my goal is not to get them to see I'm right. My goal is to move them closer towards Christ. My goal is to get them to Jesus. And he's saying we have to respond in a way that puts the responsibility on us and not simply on them. Now, how do we do that? It's, it's enough to talk about it, but how does that actually work? And let me share just a little bit about the problem of secular tolerance. You see, we live in a culture that says what we need is more tolerance. And we're going to hear that a lot. Certainly with these laws in Alabama and Missouri, we're going to hear a lot of things about tolerance. And the need just simply to be taught, well, what does secular tolerance mean? What is it that we're trying to pursue? Because secular tolerance will say, in the area of religion and morality, we shouldn't evaluate each other. We should just agree to disagree. I'm not going to evaluate you in the area of morality, and certainly in the area of religion. We've said that's the only, only thing wrong in our society is to be absolute about religion or morality. The only absolute left is really there are no moral absolutes. And so secular tolerance says, we, we're not going to disagree on these issues. You do what you want. I'll do what I want, and neither one of us will spend time with each other. Let's just agree, we, you have a right to exist, I have a right to exist, but we're not going to get to know each other. 
And that's the essence of secular tolerance, is on the one hand, the only absolute left is to say there are no moral absolutes. But see, God in the gospel calls us to go much, much deeper. He doesn't say avoid disagreements. He doesn't say avoid discussions that are difficult. He doesn't say put away your beliefs and don't disagree with others. Rather, what Jesus calls us to is to enter into relationship with those to whom we may deeply disagree. Jesus invites us, just as he did with us, to enter into relationships with others to whom we deeply disagree. Not for the purpose of proving myself right, but for the purpose of drawing that individual towards the grace of God, which is the only thing in the end that's going to change them. See, God doesn't call us to secular tolerance. Rather, he calls us to receptive grace. And I want you to see this idea again in in Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15, verse 7, here's how Paul describes it. And he says, Therefore, welcome one another, and notice the language, as Christ has welcomed you. So think about that in your own experience. When you came to faith in Christ, did Jesus say to you, Hey, listen, you can come and have a relationship with me if you first clean up your life. Let's get your morality straight first. Let's get your theology straight first. Let's get your ideology straight. And once everything's straight... I'll love you. Once everything's together, I'll be generous towards you. Once everything's together, I'll speak with you. In what way did Jesus welcome us? While we were yet sinners, Christ was willing to come and to incarnate himself. He who is a king became a servant so that those who are far from God might see the character of God. See, Jesus experienced and expressed grace always in truth and truth always in grace. That he met us where we are, He met us in our broken values. And even now, he continues to be patient towards us, though there are areas of our life that we're saying to him, these areas are off limits. He says that we need to respond to others as Christ has responded to us. Now, in Romans 14.1, he describes, Paul describes it this way. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over opinions, that we have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak, which means to be generous even when we disagree, to be hospitable even when we disagree, that there is never a right to stop showing generosity. There's never a right to stop showing love. There's never a right to stop showing patience. These are things that belong to the person that know the grace of God. As we walk out into a world that deeply disagrees with us, we have to move beyond just secular tolerance and learn receptive grace. That receptive grace is willing to enter into relationships with others to whom we deeply disagree. Now, here's the truth. Not all of you should enter in relationships with everyone because you're not good at it. (laughs) There are people in your life that you know God has not called you to reach because that's an area of temptation for you. Because when you're with that person, you're not culturally, you're not in Christ strong, you're actually weak. And those people bring out greater weaknesses in you. So you've got to know your own weakness. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not suggesting to you that you just go out there and open yourself up to every single person that disagrees with you. But God has called you to exercise grace without forfeiting truth. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to welcome someone as Christ welcomes us? Well, I'm not saying you're agreeing with what they're doing. Don't walk away from here with that idea. We are holding to the truth of Scripture, but Jesus approached us in a certain way. Here's some ideas, some ways that we can do this. 
I think it begins by understanding and essentially understanding the way people think. It begins by understanding the way people think, which means being willing to enter into their world. You cannot understand why somebody behaves the way they do until you begin to understand their family of origin, their struggles in life, their difficulties. Often, we put our own experiences over everyone else's life, expecting them to respond the same way that we do. But I think Jesus, in incarnating himself and becoming a servant, he entered into our life, understood the suffering, understood our story, understood our brokenness, was willing to understand the brokenness in the way that we think. We have to approach people in a way that doesn't assume, but assumes there's something we need to learn. One of the challenges I think we have when we engage people is we assume because this person lives morally different from me, there is nothing for me to learn, and there's no way in which I need to change. That is not going to lead to a positive encounter. We have to recognize when we enter in relationship with that person, that person can teach us something something about ourselves, something about our lives in which we need to trust in Christ more. So it begins with understanding. Second, it begins with bearing someone by entering into relationship with them. And realize how different this is from our culture. Our culture says, I disagree with you. You have a right to exist, but I want nothing to do with you. What would it look like if there were a community of people who stood on truth, deeply disagreed, passionately disagreed, and yet were willing to be generous? who are willing to be patient, who are willing to love and to sacrifice. It'd look a lot like Jesus. We're not forfeiting truth. We're adding truth with grace and being willing to enter into someone else's life to whom we have deep disagreements. It means entering into their life in a way that impacts them. And then third, it means making space in your life to change. It means making space. And that's not suggesting that we change what we believe. But it's recognizing in this encounter, I might discover some weakness in me that's uncomfortable, that I'm with this person, and I need to bring that back into the presence of God when I'm with that person and recognize there's something in me that needs to change. And here's a big one. Make space in your life by expecting, you ready, to be misunderstood. Are we willing to make space in our life by expecting to be rejected, by recognizing that as we stand for truth, the consequence of truth is you will be misunderstood. You know, Jesus was one who was persecuted in every way. And he said, if we're going to follow him, we should expect persecution. We should expect to be rejected and not respond to persecution and try to overcome evil with evil, but rather to overcome evil by responding with grace and good. So on the one hand, we got to respond in a way to recognize it, and then finally we need to make space fifth in our life by honoring what God is doing in their life. We need to make space in our life by honoring what God is doing. Do not assume because someone immorally disagrees with you that God is not at work in their life. Because I know in this room there are many stories of people who have walked in dark times and God was not done with you yet. That is the story of redemption. We do not assume we know what God is doing in someone else's life. So practically, as we conclude, how do we work that out? How does it play out in our lives? Well, it really matters that we're applying what Christ has done to our own life. And engaging with those to whom we disagree, we've got to deeply apply to our own life what Christ has already done and understand our identity. Let me explain that real quick and we'll close. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul described it this way. He said, food will not condemn us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, this may be a little veiled, but what he's describing is this idea of righteousness. That he's saying some people, when they do this behavior, they do that behavior, they feel more right with God. They feel justified. And often when we look at politics, morality, we feel justified to act a certain way. We feel, if I could say it, superior. And there's a secular superior that says, you think you have the truth. I know there is no truth. Therefore, I am superior to you. And see, that's weakness. But there's a religious superiority that says, I have the truth. You do not have the truth. Therefore, I am superior to you. But when it comes to Christianity, we can never feel superior. Now, why is that? Because at the center of our faith is one who died for us. At the center of the Christian faith is one who did not come to us and die for us because we were right. He died for us because we were wrong. And he died for us because even if he spoke to us with truth, it would not open our eyes to the fact that we were wrong. What did we need to change us? We needed an experience of grace. Truth wasn't enough. Truth by itself could only condemn. Jesus Christ came in grace and truth. He didn't come to address just what we believed wrong. He came to change what the heart worshipped. And Jesus, who was perfect in every way, died for those, died for those who, were, who crucified him and cursed him so that they could come alive to him. How did Jesus approach us? How did he get us to the Father? By giving us grace and truth and experience through him, by taking on himself the penalty, the punishment. And when you enter into relationship with those to whom you de- deeply disagree, you're going to suffer. It's uncomfortable. But if you use that, un- that, that feeling of being uncomfortable to draw closer to Christ, to draw closer to his truth and be an example of grace, an example of truth, to allow Christ to work through you, it begins to allow that person to see an element of the love of God that our culture does not believe exists. To enter into relationship and be generous towards someone to whom we deeply disagree. See, let me end with this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22... Paul said it this way, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. See, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Meaning the only thing that makes us right with God is faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that makes us right with God, the only reason, Jason, I have the morality I have is because of the death of Jesus. I cannot claim that as some moral standard of my own. The only reason I love God today is because God opened my eyes to see, which means there is no pride in my morality or where I am in life. It's simply by the grace of God. See, if that is true, then you can recognize the way that person is going to change is by encountering grace. It's the power of the gospel in their life, which means that we need to be a symbol of that grace. Hey, There's a story I heard about. I'm sure it's not true, but it's an old myth story told by Jewish people. And it was a story about Abraham. And Abraham, I guess he was out camping, something like that. He's out in a tent. And he was enjoying life. And he saw this old, weary man who came, was passing by his tent. And he could tell he was weary by time and age. And Abraham reached out to him and said, why don't you come in and spend time with me? Abraham prepared a meal, right? He prepared a dinner, prepared a place for him to sleep. And 
as they were sitting there and the meal began, he noticed that this old gentleman who was wearied by age and time did not stop and pray. Abraham then, offended by that moment, said, hey, wait a minute. Do you not believe in God and honoring God in this moment? And he said, no, sir. I worship fire, and I do not revere God. Abraham said, well, and I grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, threw him out of his tent, and kicked him out of his life. And later on, when Abraham was proudly walking back to his tent, God said to him, Abraham, what happened to the stranger? And he proudly said to God, God, I kicked him out. And God said to his friend, Abraham, Abraham, I have suffered patiently with that man for 80 years so that you could suffer patiently with that man for one night. God is patient. He is patient towards us. And he says, I want none. I want none to be condemned, but all to come to faith. And maybe God's patience towards us and towards others is so that when that person comes into our life, we can exercise the strength of grace in our own weaknesses to allow the truth of the gospel to come together with the grace of the gospel in a way that forces us to trust in him and allows the truth and the love of God to work through our lives. Hey, there's a lot of questions on issues like this. If you have one, don't assume what I said. Come talk to me. I don't want to get in trouble today. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. It is neither... Father, it, it cannot be put in categories. Lord, so often in life we walk in these categories and we... We put a stamp of your approval over our categories, and we assume, Lord, at times that the work you've done in our life is something we own, that I'm moral because I am good, and not simply, Father, I am where I am today because of the grace of God. As Paul said, it's but the grace of God that I am where I am. Lord, would you teach us to walk and to see ourselves, and our righteousness is covered in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, our acceptance before you is purely by grace and grace alone. And Father, if we've grown in our faith, if we have grown in the way that we see life, if we've grown in the truth, that is only because of your goodness working on our heart. And so, Lord, would we take that same principle, not to, not to give up on declaring truth, not walking away from arguments or, or, or walking away in fear, but boldly proclaiming the truth of God in a way that causes others to experience the love of God, the generosity of God, and not simply using truth, but avoiding hospitality, but allowing hospitality, truth, and grace to come together in a way that is a power because only you, Father, have expressed that to us. In no other place do we see the power of the gospel but in our relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, enable us to engage ourselves that way, to see ourselves as accepted by Christ and Christ alone. And when we do that and rejoice in it, we're able to engage others to whom we deeply disagree. Father, teach us these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.